Welcome to episode six of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever-competitive practice of law. Each episode is submitted for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details are available at kylawshow.com. This episode I'm interviewing Scott White, who has a diverse litigation practice in Lexington, Kentucky. Scott takes a wide range of cases, from white-collar and public corruption criminal defense to election law disputes. He served as Kentucky Assistant Deputy Attorney General from 1996 to 2003 and as General Counsel to the State Board of Elections from 1999 to 2003. Scott also holds a Certificate of Thesis in Modern Irish Playwrights from Trinity College in Dublin. Today, Mr. White shares with us his career path from private practice to public servant and back again. We also discuss the ethics of working for a client who cannot be found. Here's my interview with Scott. Okay, Scott, so tell us about your practice. How did you get started? I got started um, in North Carolina, uh, but I'm from Lexington, grew up here, uh, decided I wanted to be a lawyer in high school. Um, kind of a stereotypical, I felt for I felt for the white liberal uh, bait of To Kill a Mockingbird and read that and said, I want to be Atticus Finch. And um, so that's how I went to law school. And then when I got out of law school, I went to North Carolina and was with a big firm. But soon after, I joined a really small, about a 15-member firm. And we were trial lawyers. That's what the managing partner described our law practice as trial lawyers. We tried everything from, um, you know, drug trafficking cases in federal court to slip and fall cases on a si- icy sidewalk to um, business litigation. I mean, if it involved a potential jury, he would take the case. Wow. And so it gave me, so I practiced there till I moved home in 1995. So almost 10 years. So in those 10 years, I got a really broad experience of lots and lots of different subject matters, if you will. And um, lots and lots of courtroom trial experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so you were there in North Carolina, I guess, until about 95. Is that right? Yes. What did you do after that? Well, my best friend um, is Ben Chandler. And we became best friends in high school. We actually, my mother and father moved to Versailles right when I started high school. So Ben and I became really close best friends in high school. Yeah, you know, our group of you. And then we went to college together, room together, went to law school together, room together. Um, we even did our abroad together. And so when he decided to run for attorney general, um, he asked me if I'd come home and help and then stay. And the answer was yes. I was always kind of planning to come back to Kentucky anyway. And when I went to North Carolina, I figured we'd be gone for two or three years, come back. But, you know, you get married, got married right out of law school. You start to have kids, start to develop your own law practice. And, you know, it just, but for that, I would probably still be in North Carolina. 
Okay. So you went to the office of the attorney general. Uh, what, what, what were you doing there? What kind of, what division were you in? What was your focus? That was a really interesting experience. The way Ben decided to run the office was he had about a five person management team. Um, of that, three of us, including him, well, four of us, including him, were lawyers. And then the actual six people, then it was our kind of uh, our chief pointy head bureaucrat is what we always called him. But um, somebody that had been in the state government for many, many years, there's about five of those kind of people. And they tend to move around when every time there's a new election. And so John had been with Ben in the auditor's office. He came with Ben to the AG's office. So John was on the management team and then our press person. And so we met every week without fail on Mondays. And basically that's how the office was run. Because at that time we had, gosh, you know, maybe 130, 140 lawyers, many divisions. Um, I was asked to also take on the acting director of the civil division. I just, I kept that, but promoted a guy that was already there after about a year. And I could kind of see what the talent was like. And so I promoted a guy to assistant director and then he pretty much ran that. So I didn't, wasn't really involved in the day-to-day -day running of the civil division in terms of the meat and bones, getting into the weeds. I was able to work kind of, you know, at a more supervisory level with that, which then freed me up to do things that Ben wanted to do from a policy standpoint. And so I, my primary, I guess the big things I worked on was, it was about a four or five year litigation project where we sued Anthem Insurance Company. They had purchased Kentucky Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was a nonprofit. That transaction was approved under the Burton Jones governor's administration and approved by the then attorney general, uh, Chris Gorman. And when we came in, there were, there was um, some cases in California where blue cross blue shield plans that were converting to either for-profit or mutuals, the attorney generals were going in, the attorney general was going in and, and clawing back money that, that, rightfully belong to, you know, just the public. And so Ben decided he wanted to do that. So we had to un, we had to deal with the fact that our predecessor had approved it. Lots of other litigation related to that. And then ultimately we settled that for $44 million. And that became the corpus of a new foundation called the Foundation for a Healthy Kentucky, which has been up and running since I guess 2001. It deals with health policy, things like that. Um, then I was very involved in the settle, in the negotiation, the litigation, and the negotiation of what then was known as the Master Settlement Agreement, which was <clears throat> in the early 90s. The Miss, the Attorney General from Mississippi, along with some plaintiff lawyers that he brought in sued the big four, or at that time, the big five cigarette manufacturers under the legal theory that they had been deceptive in their marketing of a dangerous product. It caused huge expenditures of state Medicaid money. 
Therefore, the cigarette companies owed them a bunch of money. And so by the time Ben took office in 96, by 97, a lot of other states had gotten involved. And one of the big cigarette companies basically became a cooperator. They cut their deal and then through that shared all these, you know, a warehouse full of documents that implicated the cigarette manufacturers as far back as in the 30s. Our difficulty was, as we were a tobacco state, you know, Burley tobacco at that time was grown in 119 of 120 counties. Um, and so there was certainly a policy interest in maintaining the health of the cigarette companies, but also we knew that that was probably going to end up succeeding. And Ben was particularly concerned with how that would impact um, small farmers because most tobacco farmers were small farmers. They weren't large farms like you hear about with um, like out in the Midwest and the West, <coughs> we have ag farm. And so we got involved along with colleagues that I developed in Tennessee, North Carolina, primarily, um, who are also big tobacco states. And we ended up bringing or threatening to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the farmers and the farm interest. Um, and we ended up getting a separate set settlement with them that was designed to fund or get money into uh, farmers' hands and farm communities that were relying upon tobacco. And so those are probably my two biggest things I dealt with um, because the tobacco thing lasted from about 98 till we left office. Um, and then tons of other things, everything from being involved in the criminal investigation of then Governor Patton's 1995 campaign, um, uh, just any number of things that could, uh, I got involved in a nuisance lawsuit that I dreamed up to represent a state park to keep some uh, gas, gas wells from being drilled based on some historic leases that have been signed back in the 30s. This is in Eastern Kentucky, what's known as Break Center State Park. It's right on the, mm -hmm. the state line between Kentucky and Virginia. So it's a half and half. It's called an interstate park. Um, I was involved in the execution of Danny McQueen. Um, he was executed, I think, in 97. Um, and then, you know, just dealing with the politics and the internal fighting of, you know, legislative sessions. Um, oh, and then they're one of the big investigations that I wasn't involved in much in the kind of on the ground, but was more involved in dealing with some of the legal issues and theories. And that was when um, we investigated the Legislative Research Commission where there were um, there was an employee there that that was close to a couple legislators who had basically arranged for strippers from Lexington and Louisville to go onto the payroll of the LRC during legislative sessions. And this is why I invited you to be on the show, Scott. I knew that. That's you right. <laughs> I've seen some of the pictures, although I probably still can't talk about. 
<laughs> it was interesting what these guys did. The problem was the LRC guy that was the main, well, who ran the thing was from Versailles. And um, he was close to several members of the General Assembly that were in leadership. And so we ended up angering the state legislature quite a bit. They were controlled by, at that time, the D's controlled both the House and the Senate. And so half of what we were doing was trying to keep them from cutting our budget too bad. But when they went ahead and cut us regularly anyway, we had to come up with other more creative ways to have money for our agency. And so I was involved in some of that stuff as well. Oh, that's really that's a, cool. That's a long essay answer to your, to a very good question. So that's what I, so basically that's what I did for eight years. And even though, you know, probably 15% of my time was spent on criminal prosecutions, I've since asked for, for forgiveness from the Lord and Russ Baldoni, and they've both given me absolution for those eight years being on the wrong side. But other than that, I absolutely loved uh, my job. And of course, we were hoping that Ben would have beaten Ernie Fletcher. We could have taken the traveling circus across across the building from we were on the front side of the Capitol, the governor's on the back side. And uh, lo and behold, um, Ernie ended up beating us by, uh, I think, nine points in the two, uh, 2003 governor's election. So then Ben went to Congress and the rest of us had to get jobs. It's... Oh. So what did that mean for you, Scott? Well, what it meant for me initially was I didn't know where I'd go because I'd been practicing in Charlotte. That was the extent of my private practice. Although it was almost as broad based as what I did in the attorney general's office, because you just never knew what you're going to be working on there. Um, and all the firms that I primarily dealt with were large Louisville firms and out-of-state firms. And the only people that I really knew in Lexington or in Kentucky were people I went to law school with. Well, I didn't want to move to Louisville. I had, I had two offers to go with big firms in Louisville based because of my political connections, which were pretty good by, you know, eight years in state government at that kind of a level. Um, and I didn't really like that. I didn't want to move to Louisville. I wasn't crazy about doing a big firm. And so one of my dear friends from law school um, was practicing with um, um, Burl. Um, Burl. Uh, why can't I call Burl's last name? You're talking about Burl McCoy? Burl McCoy, my God, I'm so sorry. Well, so hey, John, Kevin, and Burl have been practicing together forever. And John, Kevin, and I were running one day. I was a big runner back then, uh, despite how I look now. And, and I was bitching and moaning to JK. And he said, why don't you just come practice with us for a while until things sort out? I met Burl, love Burl, and uh, ended up practicing there for, I don't know, about two years. And it was basically just my own law practice. You know, they got a cut of what I brought in. Um Luckily for me, I was able to generate a lot of work early on, um, primarily through my contacts, my experience in the tobacco litigation, and then some, all the election prosecutions we did. Plus, I'd spent, I ended up 
actually being general counsels of the Board of Elections for the last four years, we were in the AG's office. And um, so I was able to make my mortgage payments, do all that. And then John McGarvey, who was the managing partner at um, Morgan and Pottinger in Louisville, which is primarily, well, almost exclusively at that time, a firm that, that represented financial institutions like banks, credit unions, things like that. I think John has probably taught, you know, Article 9 to half the people that went to UK. But they needed someone who could actually try cases. And there's a lot of lender liability cases. You know, banks get into fights all the time. And those cases are rarely tried. But they did need to have somebody that could credibly try the cases. And so they had a small Lexington office. And so I ended up joining that firm in 05 and stayed there till 2016. By that time, I'd become an equity partner. Um, but because of some, I would just say different philosophy, I made the decision to leave the firm. And all I had to do is hire my replacement. And that was Ben Crittenden, who is a heck of a lawyer and doing a great job for him. Um, the problem we were running into was I was having too many what they called business conflicts, where it kind of came to a head. I represented a real high profile defendant in a child porn production case. And, um, uh, you know, it was in the news and all that. And, um, a couple of bankers asked John about me doing that kind of case. Well, at the same time, I was representing them on business cases. And, you know, it just created some tension. Um, and then John and I were approached to represent the state in some of the same-sex marriage litigation. And that created a real problem because, um, you know, it was going to be high profile. I was going to be in the paper a lot. And so I just made the decision that I was giving up. I was risking, I would had lost a couple of cases because of that or engagements. And I didn't want to keep that happening. Um, and I also wanted to do more criminal defense, which was really why I went to law school at the very, at the very beginning. And there just wasn't a good marketing fit. I wasn't getting the kind of cases I thought I could get. And the biggest difficulty was I, I respected and liked every one of my law partners. I mean, they're great guys and gals, and they're all still good, my good friends. But basically what I did was I'm doing what I did when I first left the AG's office is, you know, I, I associated with a with a particular law firm based on the recommendation of a friend of mine who's a law professor. That worked out pretty well. Then I went to another firm. I didn't like them at all. And then I went to, uh, and then so I was commiserating with Jan Carmen and, um, and Kirby Fullerton. They said, why don't you just move your digger over here? And so I've been here the last three years. That's really cool. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you do over there at Carmen and Fullerton. Well, it's really similar to what I've always done. Um, there's about, when it comes to what I have learned, what I learned early in my career, my, my biggest mentor is a man named Alan Bailey. And I got to just, 
can I tell you a little bit about him and then absolutely that'll help me answer the question is Mr. Bailey grew up really poor on on a um, his daddy was a sharecropper um, in eastern North Carolina, uh, tobacco, you know, subsistence crops, <clears throat> some small livestock. And Mr. Bailey and, and Mr. Bailey is a small guy. He was maybe five, four, skinny as a rail, smoked big cigars had an Elvis pompadour and dressed in very expensive uh, suits tailored for him in New York, um, but was kind of the stereotypical successful Southern lawyer. And Mr. Bailey uh, joined the Navy when he was 15, lied about his age, in World War II, somehow tricked him. And then he, so he served on like, like warships in the Pacific, even though he was, he wasn't even 18 when the war ended. So then he went to law school, Wake Forest on the GI Bill and opened a law practice in Charlotte, which Charlotte in the 19, late forties, early fifties was just nothing. You know, it was, it, the big cities were Winston-Salem um, <laughs> and Raleigh and um, and maybe even Wilmington. And so he got there and, and he just started practicing law, hanging out the courthouse, taking cases, didn't matter what kind. Well, by the time he died, he was pretty much considered one of the three or four greatest trial lawyers in North Carolina in the 20th century. And um, you know, and that includes guys like Jonathan Edwards, or when he ran for vice president with Kerry, Jonathan suddenly became John when he ran for the Senate. But I always, everybody else knew him as Jonathan, who was an amazing trial lawyer. I mean, North Carolina had some really amazing trial lawyers. And, and so, you know, he grew that firm, but he never liked it to get more than about 14 or 15. And we always had one, he always had one person who did estate work and one person who did small business work. And so in the nine years I was there, I, I tried medical malpractice case, tort cases, you know, generic criminal defense practice, misdemeanors, felonies, federal felonies. Um, but I also did some really cool stuff. Like we represented this kind of interesting religious group that were kind of like modern Amish. <laughs> they were in the mountains of North Carolina and the federal department of labor uh, came down hard on for child, uh, for, for, for child employment practices because <laughs> they were using their kids and they, they, what they were, they're were all Masons. So mm. they had these bricklayers who are like 11 to 12 years old, you know, working on general contracting jobs, you know, kicking everybody's butt. And so suddenly the feds came down on, we represented them, got them out of everything. It was a ton of fun. We went up and down from the fourth circuit on that a few times. Then I got to represent Bruton Smith, who was the owner of the Charlotte Motor Speedway, because he and Mr. Bailey were neighbors and best friends. So we always did a lot of Bruton's work including one of my partners when I left represented, I think, Bruton in his divorce. And God knows how much he made on that. But, you know, he's considered one of the founding fathers of NASCAR. Mm -hmm. um, that was fun. 
another one was another good friend of Mr. Bailey's that he, you know, he just knew everybody. There's a guy named Cy Bayhackle, and he owned tons of radio and TV stations all over the Southeast. Well, when George Shin was trying to put together an ownership package to, to buy the what became the Charlotte Hornets franchise, expansion franchise, it was extremely successful. So then he had these three minority shareholders that he needed their he needed their balance sheets to be able to present a credible bid to the NBA. And so they got successful. So then he started freezing them all out and terminating their contracts. So Mr. Bayhack called Mr. Bailey and said, I'm not going to take this laying down from that little punk George Shin. And um, so he ended up, so Sai come or Mr. I never called him Sai. So suddenly Mr. Bailey didn't have time to do it. I'm doing that case. And, uh, and so, you know, I definitely loved the cases that would get media attention. And I learned a lot from Mr. Bailey, how to use the media to help you in a variety of cases. You know, he represented Mr. Bailey, um, represented Jim Baker and Tammy Faye for a while during their old prosecution and, and how to deal with the press and things like that. And how one day you may be doing depositions in a, in a complex truck, accident case out on interstate 40 um to you know representing somebody trying a case involving an assault too and how you have to be able to shift and how you and and where you reach out for help which then taught me how to make to develop good relationships within the bar so that like for instance that that case involving bruton smith and it had to do with the ownership of a of one of the racing teams, but um, I reached out to a friend of mine who practiced tax law at the biggest law firm in Charlotte, you know, and got him to educate me on some things. So, you know, I learned some really important lessons, but the thing I learned the most from Mr. Bailey is that the skills of a trial lawyer apply in just about any case. And if you're willing to take the time to educate yourself, including bringing in perhaps, you know, an additional lawyer from outside your firm or an expert or just somebody you could consult with and allow, or maybe give them that case. And then you do second with them so the next time a case like that comes in, you know how to do it, taught me that there's really not, if I'm interested in the case, I'll take it. Um, now, you have to be careful of that from an ethical standpoint, because you can't accept a case that you're clearly not competent in. But um, generally, competence can be lined up, you know, and if you have a good relationship with, you know, various members in the bar, it can be anything from bringing them in as, as joint counsel to just about you name it. I mean, there's very few areas of the law that I'll just turn down as a matter of fact, um, because, you know, you never know when that spig is going to run dry. You know, there's every year UK turns out a bunch of, of lawyers every year, uh, you know, some percentage of whom 
will never be very good lawyers or be able to get good jobs. And suddenly they're, you know, they're out there competing with you for everything from, you know, routine criminal cases to, you know, domestic relations. You know, I'm not going to speak to the Fayette County Bar, but, you know, uh, there are plenty of lawyers out there that are doing legal work that have never been mentored or trained out other than law school and just kind of watching things. Some of them do really, really well, but sadly, a bunch of them don't do very well. Um, but yet they're competitors. And so that's why I'm always more inclined than not until, you know, probably the last four or five years of my career to generally take a case. And that was something that Mr. Bailey taught me was, and he also taught me, I mean, we regularly went against big firms, big firms, you know, uh, not necessarily in tort cases or criminal cases, but in the non-tort litigation we did, or particularly like when we took on some voting rights cases, some 1983 excessive force cases, you know, we were going against huge firms. And of course, the first time I got in a big case like that, and I looked at, looked the lawyer up in Martindale Hubble, they were both Harvard grads. And I was convinced that I was going to get my butt kicked and these people needed to hire somebody else. And I went into Mr. Bailey and I said, I just don't know if I'm good enough. And he said, I'll worry about that. You blankety blank, blank, you know, for a good Baptist, sometimes he would lapse into uh, uh, profanity, shall we say. And, you know, that helped me overcome that, you know, just that, that insecurity that, you know, I went to a state law school, you know, and maybe I'm not as good as these men and women at other big law firms. And, um, you know, I've just not found that to be true. You know, uh, there's a lot of lawyers smarter than me, but I'm willing to work and I'm real willing to be creative. You know, as a, as a friend of mine, we're, we're having a debate about how to try a case in the AG's office. And it was kind of a younger lawyer and he's gone on to be a great lawyer. He says, well, I don't really think the civil rules allow us to do that. And I said, well, yeah, but I think we could make an argument that maybe they do. Let's just make up the rules and see what happens. <laughs> you know? I mean, you got to be careful how you be, how you, you only become so creative. You lose credibility with the court or with your colleagues, but you know, the law provide, and your practice is a great example of this is, the law provides a lot of creativity and um, whether it's in the law or applying the law to the facts. Um, I was just thinking about Daniel Whitley got that verdict. I don't know, a couple of months ago and there's something he did in the trial that really just impressed me when somebody was telling me about it, how he got real creative with something. I can't even remember what it was, but I was just thinking he's a lawyer. He's, he's a great lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. He's a lawyer. And um you know, that's what I aspire to be. Absolutely. Or aspire Absolutely. to. There's no there's no time left for me. I'm 62. I am what oh. I am. <laughs> you inspire all of us, Scott. That's that's I'm that's so glad I'm, to hear that. That's why I wanted you on the show. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to pursue a career similar to yours? Um I would tell them not to worry about how much they're making right out of law school even if they have to, you know, live cheaply and negotiate with the student loan carriers that, that 
you need to hook on, and it doesn't matter what size firm, but at least with a group of people who are who are good lawyers that are practicing in the area that you're interested in, and then view your first two to four years out of law school essentially as a uh, as a residency, like they do in, with the doctors do, um, and. That's how I think you really learn how to practice law. The best, if you can land in a position like, say, with DPA or willing to, to you know, or to go to a, a district where there's a federal public defender's office instead of the CJA system, um, uh, or maybe a smaller regional town like, you know, Hopkinsville or Bowling Green or, you know, Pikeville or wherever, just to practice and try cases. That's what I would tell people to do is, is there's a lot of lawyers. What I found this isn't quite the advantage it used to be because of the, the enormous impact of mediation and plea bargaining that you see in modern practice today, where at times you can feel like an insurance adjuster, whether you're negotiating a plea or negotiating um, a civil outcome is there's a lot of lawyers that are afraid to go in a courtroom and and i get that it's it's an anxiety producing event i can't think of a single case where i've tried where i didn't think going into it i'm going to have a panic attack and lose my mind and wind up at eastern state hospital that doesn't go away you're telling me i'm i'm, I'm no, keep hearing that you're screwed man you're screwed <laughs> that's why so many lawyers turn out to be drugs. But, but, you know, it's, it's, if you've got good trial skills, I believe that will always be marketable, certainly on the criminal side. You know, if you have a, a healthy state court criminal practice, you can try cases, you know, now it's harder in the federal system because they get to pick and choose. And sometimes you try a case in federal court where, you know, the plea offer is nearly as bad a medicine as what a jury will do to you. And so you'll try some of those. But, you know, when I first got out of law school in the mid 80s, I mean, it was hard to try a criminal case only because it was hard to get time. You know, everybody, people were trying cases all the time. And at least in civil court, that is, I don't know how much of your practice is civil, Brad, but it's, it's really unusual. I was talking to a, a couple of buddies of mine who were judges and they're like, God, you know, it would be fun just to try an interesting civil case, you know, but, but with all this mediation and stuff like that, you know, that's, you know, back when I started practicing, it was the judge who was the mediator and you really didn't start mediating till you showed up to pick a jury and you spend an hour back there with the judge while everybody's clients was wondering what the hell are they back there for so long for, you know, it's because the judge was trying to see if he could settle or she could settle. Well, back when I started, it was extremely unusual to see a woman judge. So it was usually a, he, they were tw twisting your arms, but um, I don't know. I just can't think of a, uh, if you want to be, there's all kinds of lawyers you can be, as you know, too. But if you want to be and call yourself a trial lawyer, then you've got, in my judgment, no business going out and hanging up a shingle or 
just jumping right in and trying to grab cases in district court when people are lined up in a docket. I'm not criticizing that, but if but a law school will not prepare you to do what you need to do. That's why I think you really got to figure out a way to work with somebody else. Um, and, you know, the competition's high. I mean, DPA, even when I was in law school in 86, those were, you know, they were looking for really, really good lawyers. You couldn't just, you know, just kind of think of, well, I can always get a job as a public defender. Well, that's not the case. Some of the best lawyers I know are public defenders. Um, but God, if you want to do criminal work and do defense work, I would, I would do everything I could to hook up with some public defender's office or federal public defender's office. I just think that's the best way. I just got lucky. Right. That's a great answer. Um, Okay, we've got a few minutes before we get to our ethics section. Um, I wanted to ask you, what's one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? Um, <laughs> how, to, how to accurately quote a legal fee. <laughs> but but uh, that's what I think just, I wish I'd have known and I could have been better prepared for the the stress and the time commitment. I don't think I really understood the, the, the level of stress and the time commitment involved to, to becoming, you know, a competent lawyer and then continuing to practice law. Um, I knew it was a lot of work and blah, blah, blah. So I clerked for a, for a medium-sized Lexington firm then a large Cincinnati law firm in law school but you don't really get that sense. And then I was unprepared for it. Um, and my own story is, is that the way I treated that was with alcohol and marijuana. Well, I was lucky because about four years of that, uh, Mr. Bailey also suggested I take a 30 day vacation at a, uh, at, at, at a, a nice little facility where I could dry out and, and, but there's, much more healthier ways to deal with that, particularly if you know what you're getting into. And I think the bar, particularly under the leadership of Yvette Hurrigan at Kelap, is doing a really good job of, of building in those kind of structures. And I know our, our current bar president is acutely concerned about that and is dealing with that. I mean, I, I, I kind of joked about it earlier, but the reality is, is that alcohol and drug use is higher in our profession than, you know, most other professions um, in terms of those people that call themselves professionals. You know, they have to get a postgraduate degree and a license and things like that. Um, and, you know, it seems like every three or four years we have a bad spate of suicides. And so I think. I wish I would have known better how to cope with those pressures. Um, you know, I'd taken a year off, two years off between undergrad and law school and felt more mature, but I was just ill-equipped is the best way to put it. And, you know, particularly when I practiced in Charlotte after about four years and I became a partner 
And then the eight years I was in the AG's office when I was responsible for about, I don't know, 75 lawyers or so. And then as an equity partner, Morgan Pottinger, you know, it was so easy to see how young lawyers could be broken by not being prepared and taking the time to prepare them to practice in a very demanding profession. You know, you and I do the kind of work where on, on a criminal side, if we screw up, you know, we've got somebody that's going to go to prison or may go to prison for a longer period than, than they may have needed to, or you're representing, you know, I just finished representing two young people that were horribly, um, were, were victims of horrible excessive uh, police violence here in Lexington. Um, and I knew that there was a lot of st at stake in getting a positive outcome to both help them understand that they didn't do anything to deserve that and also to compensate them. And so you've got those pressures and you need something to help you cope with that, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think as I wish I'd have been more aware of that. And, and I suspect the law schools are doing better, but from what I'm seeing, they're really not, you know, it's still something that we could do a much better job of. I think that's, we'll put, okay. It's time now for our ethical dilemma. Every month. Well, of I course I have those <laughs> several times a day. So I'm the man, but, but uh, I will say this too, that, that I'm prepared to, I'm prepared to do my time in KBA jail for my clients. Let me tell you. <laughs> Lie, steal, or cheat. I'm trying to get this episode approved with the for, I'm trying to get this approved for ethics credits, Scott. I, I don't need. <laughs> I know. They know I love them. I've got, I've got one case over there now. I've usually got a case over there and I just, I love them all. I'm on the, I was on Key Lab forever. They, they know me well enough to know that I'm poking them. I know. I know. We I, all I mean, are. I'm not doing anything unethical. Absolutely. Nothing unethical on this show. Okay. It's time for our ethical dilemma. Every month, I take a few minutes out of each episode to propose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on Kentucky bar opinions and real MPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 15 minutes or 0.25 hours. Listen to all 12 monthly episodes of our podcast in a year, and you walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credits for that year. Today's hypothetical has to do with the ethical obligations of a lawyer who is unable to locate his or her client. Scott, are you ready? I am. All right. And this comes to us from KBA Ethics Opinion E-433 that was issued May 19th of 2012. So what are the ethical obligations of a lawyer who has funds or property belonging to a client who cannot be located? Well, uh, I read that ethics opinion, as I told you last week, but I didn't get a chance to reread it today. I will tell you the quick answer would be, it's not mine, and I better call the bar to find out what I can do. But, uh, you know, obviously, other than that, I think what I would do is there are tools available to us as lawyers to really try to track somebody down. Um, but failing that you know, um, I would, I would see guidance from the bar. I wouldn't do anything on my own with something like that. Even with an ethics opinion, I'd still feel compelled to get that, to call that hotline. 
So without that's a heck of a cop out answer. What it is, it's that's fine. That's fine. We'll get to the real answer here in a second. But without breaking any confidentiality rules, because we wouldn't do that. Have has a client ever left you with any weird property that you had to dispose of? And what was it? (laughs) Yes, yes. It was. It was actually in Charlotte. It was a. it was, I was one of the, one of the lawyers in our office did a ton of domestic or family practice and did it on a big, I mean, he was like the, like one of the five lawyers. If you've got to really hire someone to be a terrier, Russ was the guy. And so it was these, it was these couple that collected Hubble figurines that are like these small little ceramic things made in Germany for like decades, I guess. But we had like 80 of them with a value. The total value was like, I don't know, like 30 grand. And this was back in like 88 or 89. I was still a young lawyer where I had to say, yes, I'll help you on those kind of things. And then he just disappeared. We couldn't find him. And so we had all these, obviously we couldn't put them in a trust account because they were, you know, tangible property. And so, but what we had done was we had them in there, these shipping containers, like boxes that they came in, but somehow the judge tricked us. Well, I should say me because Russ got very angry when I came back and said what the judge said we had to do was we had to keep possession of these until that got worked out. Well, it all got worked out, but then we couldn't find him. And so we had all these, we had all these ceramics back in the storage room. And like, I had wrapped old blankets around it. I mean, all kinds of stuff. We eventually found him, but I do know that we called the bar to ask for help as to what to do. Cause it'd been like, it was like three or four months. He just disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so think- we hung on, we hung on to it and what the bar told us then again, this would have been 88 or 89 was just hang on to it. You know, once a month or so try to make an inquiry, but you've pretty much done all you can and just see if he surfaces, come back in a year. And uh, he surfaced, he was in, he had gone to, to clear his mind to somewhere in central America. And of course that's before cell phones and stuff like that. So <laughs> we didn't even, we didn't even know he'd left the country. <laughs> I had a client of mine, we got done doing a, a, a long and involved proffer with the DEA and the assistant United States attorney. And um, at the end of it, he's like, everybody's like, you did a good job, you know, whatever. And he's like, hey, is there any way I could get those garbage bags that were in the back of my car back? And he wasn't going anywhere. Let's be clear. He was in custody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, DEA looks at me and I'm like, what? what? And the AUSA looks at me and they're like, what? And they're like, well, do you want to take it for him? And I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this guy's about to do 10, 20 years. What am I supposed to do with this stuff? So, um, but I am a client centered attorney. Yes, you are. Yes, <laughs> and you I believe, are. and I believe that if a client wants something done and it's not illegal and it's not unethical, I'm going to try to help them do it. And so I went and I went to the impound lot and the, local DEA agent like gave me these three garbage bags full of stuff. And, um, and so like what I remember from it was, it was a lot of toys for a child, very sad, Mm -hmm. a bathroom vanity mirror, and then a Louis Vuitton backpack with a new pair of air force ones in it. Yeah. So you you decide the air force ones really were part of your fee. 
Well, here's what happened, right? <laughs> so the client, like after we did the proffer, um, didn't end up being able to retain my full services. But he told me to go ahead and keep the Air Force Ones and that somebody and that his CJA attorney would come by and pick up the rest of it. <laughs> did you did, were they your size? They were not. So I, I they were the CJA attorney's size, though. So I gave them to him. So um, any well, of it, that's not a, it's not a client that's unlocatable, but it's the weirdest thing that I've ever had happen. Probably. Well, I'll tell you one weird thing was. I was representing, you remember Eric Kahn? You of know, course, yeah. Okay, so Eric gets, you know, he gets located in Honduras, brought back to the U.S. I'm still his attorney, and so we have this, you know, we have this detention hearing, only because you have to have him. You know, the idea of Judge Weir letting him out on, on pre-trial pre release, I told him, I said, I don't think you, you're going to, you can count on, on any terms. So we're finishing up. One of the FBI agents who happens to be a friend of mine, I'd known him from when I was in the AG's office, says, I've got something for you. I said, what? And it was a box, a cardboard box of what Eric had with him when they picked him up. And you know, I still got that box. <laughs> you know, it's That's awesome. Well, it's actually the in the basement of Carmen and Fullerton. And so if I ever leave here, I think I'm just going to send a letter to Eric and say, all right, your 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 uh jogging outfit, your plastic wallet, and your underwear are in a box. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we let's get back I didn't on get track. Any, I didn't get any Air Jordans though. I'm going to get back on track. A so according to the Bar Association, a lawyer must first make a reasonable effort to locate the client. If the lawyer is unsuccessful, the lawyer must follow the procedures set out in the state's unclaimed property laws. Oh, really? So get sheets to the state? I think so. Not surprising. Wow, that doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> God. You remember, do you remember back in the, you wouldn't because you're probably in elementary school, but it turned out the state had like gazillions of dollars of, of unclaimed property that they had not been following the rules on. And I think it was when Jonathan Miller was treasurer, Jonathan came up with this scheme to get all this unclaimed property to people and ended up giving away most of, most of it ended up getting claimed. So, you know, I guess you'd have to convert those Air Jordans into, into cash and then give it to the state. I guess so. All right. So well, here's the second. Good in those, those kicks. I appreciate it. They were white on white. I mean, they were nice summer. Man. Probably should have just crammed in there. You but um, all right. At question number two for our ethics portion of the program, what are the ethical obligations of a lawyer to continue to represent a client who cannot be located? And this is in a civil context it's talking mm -hmm. about, but we can talk about criminal too, because, you know, you mentioned Mr. Khan. I don't you know, want to make you talk about cases, but certainly he was unable to be located. What, um, did, what did you do in that capacity? Well, in that capacity, in the criminal case, it was, I was still counsel of record, but Eric had communicated with me while he was on the run. And so I never knew where he was, but I knew he wasn't dead. And so, you know, my view was and talking to the bar was, you know, you're his lawyer, you know, there's nothing you can do for him right now. There's no, 
right. ongoing proceedings, anything like that. There was some stuff civilly, um, but essentially we had to see it out until, you know, um, when he came back, I was a potential witness because I had communications with him. And so Judge Weir rightly denied our his motion to have me appointed CJA because obviously he didn't have the funds by then. But, um, you know, until I got relieved by the court, I, I had to represent him. Um, now, civilly, the last time I had that happen, we used a guardian ad litem process. And that happened maybe 10 years ago where we just couldn't find somebody. And uh, I remember the court, for some reason, we came up with the idea that they had to, we, he appointed a, or she appointed a guardian ad litem. Then that person tried to find him and then made a report to the court. And I can't remember what all happened. Yeah. So what the ethics opinion says is that the, in a civil, in a civil context, the lawyer's ethical obligation will depend upon the stage of the representation and the facts of the matter. In most civil matters, the lawyer will have to withdraw because the lawyer will likely be unable to meet the ethical obligations imposed by the rules of professional conduct without the client's participation. Nevertheless, the lawyer has an obligation to protect the client's interest to the extent reasonably possible. Makes sense to me. Yeah, I think that's, again, one of those, you know, what I found with a lot, particularly the ethics opinions, is, is there, there's a modicum of common sense as well. So I think if you when you're in that kind of an ethical dilemma, you just think, what's the common sense thing? Well, try to find them. Mm-hmm. What do you need to do to try to find them? You need to, you know, exercise reasonable efforts, you know, and it sounds kind of, that's essentially what the, what the, what the bar is saying. Yeah, no, uh, I've had like investigators run skip traces for me for mm-hmm. clients that I couldn't track and, and that kind of thing. I mean, more so for witnesses, but for clients, for sure. And I think that, you know, I, you know, what's reasonable, I think changes over the, over time and what technology we have, you know, mm-hmm. should you check social now? I mean, I feel like it's reasonable to check social media platforms. I've had clients who wanted to communicate with me over WhatsApp because they didn't have a phone number. You know, I've had mm-hmm. clients that want to communicate with me over Facebook messenger so it's just, you know, what is reasonable and where to look has become increasingly difficult as there are more platforms and things and like that's, that. And that's a great point. And the reality is, is that that just becomes another tool to use. And so you have to ask yourself, would a reasonable lawyer do that in trying to find this person? And I think most of us would say, yes, you do. Yeah. And it, it's 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 important. And so I'm going to we've got one more question. We're going to do it quick because um, we're running a little bit low on time. Not surprising with you, Scott. I know. Uh, what are the ethical obligations of a lawyer who receives a settlement offer on behalf of a client who cannot be located? Uh, well, you can't act on it. You can't accept on behalf of your client because it's it's not your decision to make. Um, I think the same rule kicks in that you've got to reasonably try to locate the person. And then if you can't, then your next step is, as the opinion says, is withdraw. I mean, then the settlement offer is just kind of in limbo. You know, you can't tell the court about it. You, you can say, well, you know, we're involved in some negotiations or the status, but you know, it's clearly, you know, probably confidential information and, um, but I don't think you could accept the settlement. 
And that's basically what the bar said. A lawyer must abide by the client's decision regarding settlement. And without specific settlement authority from the client, the lawyer cannot accept the settlement offer. So I think theoretically, if you had in, in writing, you know, what their settlement you know agreement would be, I think you could do it then. But that's going to be pretty rare and probably well, still ill-advised. Ill I can tell you this. I've been in that situation where essentially the client formally gave me the power to make the decision. And I didn't know we was going to do that. And I declined it. I just said, you know, I'm, I'm, that is not part of my job. That's ethically, I shouldn't do that. So if you get in a position where you think you believe you have the authority to enter into the settlement agreement, I would go the I would go triple extra miles to make sure you're right about that. Absolutely. And again, and again, I would probably call, well, I know I would, I call the hotline on that. I think that's right. And, and, you know, the lawyer, the bar said that the lawyer should, however, take whatever st reasonable steps might be available to protect the client's interests. So maybe if mm -hmm. you can keep the offer open longer or, yeah. or something like that, negotiate that, I think that's probably well within your you know scope. Or oh yeah. I think maybe. that kind of thing is perfectly fine. Because the most frustrating thing would be that you find them in the summon offer that isn't there anymore. Right. So I'm going to ask you just a couple more questions to close it out, Scott. If you had a billboard, what would it say? I, in fact, have a billboard. And this is an audio show, but for those out there listening, it's a better call Scott billboard better call scott white it's exactly the same billboard that 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 saul goodman has yes a friend of mine well a former client of mine who works now who then saw you know was able to rehabilitate herself became a salesperson for a billboard company and she brought that by my office <laughs> and i said i said this is really interesting she says scott you're my saul goodman <laughs> Better call Scott. I love it. I love it. Um, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't? Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to talk about today? Best Grateful Dead show you'd ever been to. What's the best Grateful Dead show you ever went to, Scott? Uh, I would say 428-78 Lexington, Kentucky. The only time they played Lexington. What was, what was so special about that show? Uh, Jerry Garcia's well, A is in our hometown, and B, Jerry played what is considered the definitive version of Stella Blue. It appears on one of their box sets. That's and really I cool. was there in person. Did you act did you used to do a Grateful Dead radio hour or something like I that? I did. I did. <laughs> my neighbor it was who, a fundraiser for UKY. My neighbor whose name I'm forgetting, I just met him at a picnic yesterday. He he told me to ask you about that. Um, he is Where do you live? Belcourt. Is it Mike Graves? Mike Graves, yes. He he was the one that told me that he asked if I knew you and he said to ask you about that. So I did. Mike's um, a great, he's a great friend of mine. <laughs> he's a good dude. He's a good dude. Um, he's a hoot. <laughs> he was pretty funny last night. So uh, finally, one more thing. Uh, where can our listeners connect with you online? Do you have any social media platforms, a blog, the anything like that? Or? The only one that I have is our website, carmenfullerton.com. 
which I always think is funny because when Dan and Kirby came up with it, it was for their core practice or Kirby's core practice, which is immigration law. So anytime somebody goes to our website, it looks like I'm an immigration lawyer. Um, but then um, that's the only way I know to do it. That's cool. That's cool. Not everybody. I've got does. a Twitter account, but I never remember that I have it. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. Well, that's it for episode six. As always, I'm Brad Clark for the Kentucky Lawyer. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and encourage you to get your free CLE credit. Just search for the Kentucky Lawyer on the KBA CLE page or go to kylawshow.com to get the activity code for this episode as soon as it's approved. If you or someone you know would make a great guest for the show, send me an email at brad at unconvicted.com or find us on Facebook as The Kentucky Lawyer. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to this in a podcast app. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next month with another great conversation.